0: Hello my beauties, welcome back. My guest today is none other than DJ Fat Tony. Now you might have seen a video from Mixmag floating around on Facebook or YouTube with millions of views about this DJ fella who came up through London in the 80s and 90s and is the best known DJ you've never heard of and spent a million pounds on drugs and all this sort of stuff. And the documentary is phenomenal, it's linked in the show notes below and you should check it out after you've listened to this episode, but today we get to sit down with one of the most fascinating stories behind a DJ career that I've ever heard, and we get to go through everything. So from being one of the biggest DJs in London's house music scene to running some of the best known events in the UK, group sex with Freddie Mercury, pills in Hong Kong, and birthdays on Concord. Uh, I probably could have got like 10 episodes out with him. But I absolutely love this. It is such a wonderful insight into a golden era of clubbing in the UK and also a really nice story of redemption and and finding what true happiness means in a life that's been beset with a lot of sort of hedonic pleasure. Um, It's really, really good. And I love Tony. He's just such a great dude. Um, Yeah, this episode's fantastic. I really hope that you enjoy it. In other news, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Surfshark VPN. Secure your browsing online and get access to the entire world's library of Netflix's, Netflixes, Netflix libraries for less than the cost of a cup of coffee every month. Now, I can't believe that if you're in America, there's a new Michael Jordan documentary coming out called The Last Dance. If you're in America, you can't see that. But if you're in the UK, you can. So, Get Surfshark VPN for less than $2 a month and you have access to everything, not just that documentary, but everything else all over the world. Also, they've now changed their deal even more so that it's 85% off and 30 days money back guarantee plus three months for free. So even if you sign up and you don't like it or you just want to watch that one documentary, just do it just do it and then ask for your money back they're going to kill me for saying that but don't do that don't do that you know it's good it'll be worthwhile they'll they'll show you that it's good uh, but yeah, 85% off plus three months free and 30 days money back guarantee. Uh, it's so simple as well. You might be thinking, oh, i got to change my servers and do all this stuff. Super, super simple. I would not use my Netflix without it now. Simply head to surfshark.deals slash wisdom. surfshark.deals slash Wisdom, or follow the link in the show notes below and you can sign up today and go supercharge your Netflix and secure your browsing online. But for now... It's time for the wise and wonderful, Fat Tony. DJ Fat Tony in the building. How are you, man? I'm okay.
1: I'm good. I've uh, I've been yeah. I'm actually all right today. I've been here a lot. The last few weeks but i'm okay i'm good now you had the rona yeah i did yeah it kind of i kind of was like i went for a whole week of thinking oh this is all right i can do this uh it was kind of a mild flu bad chest uh but i was wise enough to ask my well my doctor decided he wanted to put me on steroids for my chest because i have a bad chest anyway uh so thankfully i took the steroids uh at, on the then it went away on the Thursday and I thought, yeah, I feel really good. Friday night, boom. Temperature forty forty in the forties for four days and four nights. The worst fever. Uh it went into my chest. I was breathless. It was awful. Yeah, That's it was harsh. really awful. That's how yeah, feeling
0: good now, feeling
1: Yeah, I'm okay. I'm just taking it easy. Do you get what I mean? I'm in no rush to go anywhere. So it's not a problem. But yeah. Thank God I had it mild, yeah,
0: yeah, I guess so uh, so my my first question is why why are you called fat, Tony when you're not fat?
1: uh that old die old question uh i when I was a kid, I was a fat kid, I got fat about the age of fourteen to sixteen uh kind of it was a coping mechanism for what I was going through, Yeah. Uh, so I kind of, you know, put on loads of weight as if, you know, it's a barrier between other people and me because I, I kind of went through a lot of it. there was sexual abuse at an earlier age. So I kind of just got fat as a protection. So, you know, it was one of those names that people called kind of whispered behind your back. So I just kept it. You yeah. know, I lost
0: my weight at 16 and that was it. It's interesting that two years of being fat, like mm. ages ago, has Brand, yeah. branded you for the rest of your life
1: I, you yeah know, it's one of those things people go oh you should change your name and it's like why would i change my name it's taken me around the world seven times do you know what i mean it's it's i've made a career out of that name i'm not going to change it i think there was a, a year and a half in the 80s where i changed it to fat pht ph80 okay yeah 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 well i went all hip-hop for a week but uh yeah no <laughs>
0: yeah so um i first heard of you as some of the people listening may have done through this recent Mixmag documentary, which has come out, which is absolutely phenomenal. And I know, hey, I'm... Have you been
1: living under a stone in Newcastle? Look. With no Wi-Fi.
0: There is. (laughs) We we are currently in the 1800s and we're hoping to get the wheel and fire and and operating running water soon. Um, But I mean, in my defence, they referred to you, this is Mixmag referred to you, as the most famous DJ you've never heard of.
1: Yeah, the reason that was... That name came about was because Seb, who works for Mix Mag, who he'd never heard of me, and he was from Cornwall. So, you know, and and I actually said to him at the time, you know, the reason you've not heard of me is because you you're from Cornwall. You don't you live in that live under a stone in in like a wooden shack. You know what I mean? You probably haven't even got a smartphone. Uh, but yeah, so that's why we called it that because I don't really like that. I like the fact that people haven't heard of me. But mm. you know, in my world, everybody's heard of me.
0: Well, I, I don't, it doesn't it didn't surprise me at all, but I think, you know, to touch on the way that industries work, especially nightlife, right? People, mm-hmm. especially from outside of the country, might look at the UK and just be like, oh, my God, it's just a speck. It's a, it's a state in America, oh, right? But the, especially with partying, because party culture is so big in the UK, it is – there are – you can go from here to Middlesbrough, f- where I'm originally, originally from, yeah. 45 miles away. And the industry is different. The music policies are different. The the type of events are different. The promoters, you know, there's no crossover. So it, it the little microcosms they they don't surprise me. Yeah,
1: so. I mean, you know, come on, I don't expect everybody to know who I am, because you know the the industry. But the, but the thing about it was was because you know my career shifted in so many different areas throughout my career, um, and right now I've been the last few years. I've been working within fashion and all of that stuff. So, you know, I, I kind of – the clubs – I got to this level where the clubs – I would still do clubs. They don't pay the money that I could get from like – I can command for doing – you know, working for Victoria Beckham or Versace or any of those brands I work with. So, I, you know, the whole idea of calling it the, the most famous DJ I've never heard of was because, it, it, you know, it, it was about tapping back into that other market mm. that I hadn't been a part of for a while.
0: Yeah, I mean – it looks like everyone that's listening will know the local DJ that has a couple of residencies a week or maybe, you know, three, four residencies a week at good events. And it looks great, but it's a fucking grind, you know? Like all of my buddies, all my buddies are resident DJs working yeah. three or four nights a week, finishing I've done- four in the morning, you know, grinding it out. It's hard work. Yeah,
1: but, you know, I've done that for a lifetime. Do you know what I mean? And now I've got to this level of of contentment within my career that I I've learned that there's a really beautiful thing about saying no and it's a really powerful thing to say no without explanation I don't need I don't need to explain why I'm saying no anymore and I you know I turned down so many different types of gigs because they're not where I want to be right now I don't need to be getting up at, at five in the morning to go to work. Do you get what I mean? Don't get me wrong. That's really not me being uh, obnoxious or taking it for granted for what I got. But you know what? I kind of, you know, I'd rather do bigger than, than smaller on some levels. Don't get me wrong. I, I do so so many different types of parties and, and events. and If they appeal to me, I'll do them. It doesn't matter how much money it is or whatever. But, you know, just got to that stage where I don't, really do residencies anymore because i find that when you become a resident you become a piece of furniture and you get treated like furniture you know the special the the, the whole feeling of being special and and different is gone because you're, you're suddenly there every week so people take you for granted you there's no amazement about it do you get what i mean I couldn't like, you, you just go there and people go oh he's there again yeah i heard him last week
0: well part and of, it's me- like the bar staff you know you're just yeah. one of the bar staff one of the glass collectors yeah, totally
1: and for me, I don't want to be
0: that anymore. I can totally get that. There's a cool quote that I heard the other day about uh, saying no, and it was that um, by saying no, you're only saying no to one thing. Mm. By saying yes, you are saying no to everything else. Because you know what? I I love questions like that. I will say yes to something that I don't want to do.
1: And then I will I get so much anxiety around that. That one thing, that one thing will keep me awake for three or four nights. Uh, I will fret and, and, you know, I will get, work myself up to this place. Right. And then what I'll do is the day before I pull a sickie or on the day, do you know what I mean? And I just think, I who, then you do you feel guilty. Feel like- after you, you felt so anxious, you think,
0: now you feel guilty.
1: You feel you, like you've let yourself down, you're letting other people down. So there's something really simple. You know, as an addict, I have people pleased quite a lot throughout my life. And I don't need to do that today. Today, I need to please one person that's myself. And if I'm happy, everybody else is happy.
0: Man, that's so much more holistic. But, I like But,
1: it. you know, and with the film, you know, with that MixMag film, I really thought no one was ever going to watch it. I, I You know, it, it started off as an interview for MixMag. Um... And in, in the interview, I said, oh, you know, it's only taken you 35 years to catch up. And, uh, you know, because the, the, everyone they've had on their, well, the majority of people they've had on their covers in that 35 years are probably stacking shelves right now. Do you get what I mean? And whereas I've kind of continued through and, you know, and then the boys at MixMag, the interview came out It got a really big, really great reception. And then they said, oh, we really want to do an online thing with you the next day. I was like, yeah, fine, let's do it. So we went off and did it. And then two days later, they came back and they were like, "Oh, you know what? We want to we want to do something bigger." And I was like, "Fine, you know, I really like the guys, Seb and Louis. They were great, they were really good fun to work with. You know, I kind of just like their cheekiness. You know, because each day they'd do an interview with me and then they'd they'd throw these questions in at the end. Like on one day, uh, Seb and kind of we'd done we'd finish filming and then Seb was like, "Oh, just one last question." And I was like, "What?" And he'd be like, "What was Freddie Mercury like in bed?" And I was like. I don't know. There were seven other people there. <laughs> simple little banter like that. And that's kind of just like the magic of what the film came out like. You know, they, they brought it to my house to show me. And uh, and I was, you know, and I kind of was like, oh, I don't, I don't know if I want to watch it. Because, like, you know, it's, it's the, the thing about it is it's the truth and the truth hurts. So it's really hard sometimes to watch the truth in black and white or, in, or on screen or read it. And uh, they they showed me, and it made me cry. It make each time I watch it, there's parts in it that make me cry because you know, it it really it it hits a nerve. And they showed me the film, and they were like, I started to cry, and they were like, Did you, you like it? And I was like, Yeah. They were like, Is there anything you want to change? And I was like, Probably ninety five percent of it, <laughs> but <laughs> but it's your film, and and you know what, I I respect it's your film, and you know what, no, I don't want to change it. I didn't want to change anything, you know. Apart from the end, I wanted them to big me up a little bit more. In the, in the, in the, in the, what he's doing
0: now type thing.
1: Yeah, because they kind of just put a few things, and I was like, no, you might as well stick it all in. And then I was like, actually no, don't stick it all in. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't need to all be there. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was kind of the one of those so we just left it as it was. And you know what? It's had nearly three million views. It's three insane. Bi-
0: it's it's three million. phenomenal. It's,
1: it's Mental man. It's
0: so good. So again, if you haven't seen it, it'll be linked in the show notes below. So once we've finished mm. uh, once you finish listening to the podcast, go and check it out. It is absolutely amazing. It's like the, one of the first long form Facebook videos I've seen with like a couple of million views as well it's mm. so, uh, just yeah. unbe- unbelievable so yeah i mean the, the blew bo- me away the bottom line is that your story resonates with a lot of people it's interesting and intriguing to a lot of people so i want to give you an opportunity to kind of delve into that and obviously yeah, guys, show yeah, show man. people that haven't seen it what that story is and then go further with with it as well so where do we start with your career where do you want to start with my career at, uh, at, the, beginning? at the beginning yes
1: well please. you know i uh, i I used to work on the door of a nightclub. I I mean, I started going out at a really young age. started going out at the age of 14 uh, to nightclubs. Uh, Got kicked out of school at 14. Went to work in a place in Kings Road, which is in Chelsea, which at that time, people walked up and down all day long on Saturdays. It was like like social media. So the likes of where I met Boy George, I met most of my friends would be walking up and down that road because punk had just come from that from from kings road chelsea so it was the next big the next best thing the next, next biggest thing so the photographers would always be there it was like i kind know of the place to go and be photographed so i got a job working there and then we started hanging out with met all my friends um made new friends obviously it made loads of a whole new circle of friends and we started going out clubbing and i would uh you know i would I had a mouth. I could get what I wanted. I was the most obnoxious person you'll ever meet. And, you know, I was always in somebody's face. So people just gave me what I wanted. And so I had this job on this door of a club called the, Lyce- at the Lyceum, where Lion King's playing at presently in London. It's a big theatre. And I was working on that door. And each week I would moan about the music for no reason. No reason at all, just moaned about it. And the guy, mm. Rusty, who run the club said to me, oh, if you can do better, bring your own tracks. And that was it. I kind of went with four records the next week. And uh, within a month, I was in New York playing How, how DJ old were you at, at this time? point? I was, uh, at that point, I was 16. Yeah, 16, coming on 17, yeah. And uh, it, literally, that was it. Uh, three weeks down the line, I'd started a, a new night on a Tuesday with my friend Stephen Lennard, uh, a club called the Wag Club, and we, we did a night called Total Fashion Victim and it kind of just spiralled from there. You know, I kind of, within, yeah, as I say, within a month, month and a half, I had a residency in New York at the Palladium and it's kind of just all went... So yeah.
0: that, that first period there from some fella on the door, some gar, lad on the door of a venue to yeah. to being a guy with four records to having a residency in New York. <laughs> yeah, that I mean, that's the that's the liftoff, i think that's probably most dramatic right like if you actually uh, look at yeah,
1: it. it kind of just it was in you know london was a much different place back then it, you know it it had a, a nucleus of, of the way which was the west end which is soho and that was it so that was the clubbing Mecca area so everybody knew each other london was a really exciting creative time we didn't have social media so everybody went out and going out was where you met people and you know um so everybody knew each other, and, and everyone at that point, London was like the place to be. Everyone in New York wanted to be in London, and, and, then everyone, and all the clubs in New York wanted people from London. So it just kind of all fell into place. And, you know, yeah, I was, it literally happened so quickly. It's just like literally
0: mad. So you got flown to New York by
1: who? I go to New York every two weeks. By who? by uh by steve rubel who owned who used to own studio 54. He, he went they got rid of 54 and then they opened this new super club called palladium there and you had schrager schrager owned like area the other club down the road and all of those clubs so i kind of got in with all that lot it was kind of really mad yeah
0: yeah that's insane what's it feel like as a 16 year old flying to New York to play records, having been well, a DJ for a month. It,
1: it was kind of um. Actually, it was about I was about seventeen because I remember I went to. New York the uh, for my birthday, my 18th on Concord, and then I got a taste no. Concord. And then I stopped doing the Palladium for a few months, and then they wanted me back, and I said, I'm only coming if you fly me on Concord. And they actually flew me on Concord. And I was just like thinking, oh my God, you bunch of wankers. <laughs> it like, you know I mean? But it was kind of just, you know what, it was kind of just, that's what it was like in those days. Do you know, suddenly, we didn't have superstar DJs before that, do you know what I mean? And it was kind of just, it's it all, it all about being in the, in the right place at the right time with the biggest mouth.
0: Well, you yeah. were positioned, based on the brand that London had, mm. you were given an unfair advantage there, right? You had competitive advantage because you were totally. the British DJ that's come over. And, you know, they can, you, you don't have, there's no fact checking, right? You can't no, go on your fun. SoundCloud and say, actually, you yeah. shit. and, and 12. Of course not. Of course not. They didn't give a shit because you know
1: all it wanted, all they wanted was the, the word London, and they wanted the, the the Wag Club or any of the other venues that I played at. So kind of that's how it was, you know. they what you you, you had nothing to fall back on apart from your, the, your last set. Do you know what I mean? And and I kind of yeah, it's mad. So what mean, then of course, What were you playing? I was playing early house. Yeah, house. It kind of started off with things like Luther Vandross and. Uh, you know, Chucka Khan and all of that stuff. At that was out at that time, and then kind of progressed slowly into. We'd play old disco, and then from old disco it went into early house, the early you know Chicago stuff. What year, and,
0: you know, what year are we talking here? Um, I should
1: know this stuff. I'm ready, but uh, we're talking. So I was eighteen. So I'm I'm fifty five now this year. So work it out yourself. Fifty five
0: to twenty. Certainly. Okay. So you're talking like late eighties, early nineties, I guess. Yeah, early 90s. Like, so, I mean, yeah. you know, for the people listening that are house heads, you know, that love defected and, and, and good, like quality modern, I guess, modern house brands. Yeah. Um, that is seen as one of the glory periods, right? For the, the well, development of house. You know-
1: It totally was. You know, I used to go to Sound Factory. I used to go to Paradise Garage. I was, you know, a a regular at that garage. And, you know, I had an amazing time, you know. And it's like I was the first one, me and my friend Steve Swindles were the first person ever to bring Frankie Knuckles to London to get him to play. So we brought him over and he played with us at this club called Jungle, which we did on a Monday. Um, Yeah, so kind of, you know, there was none of that whole – my God, we got this person, we've got that person at that point in time. That came a few years later when everything suddenly got a lot bigger. Do you get know what I mean? At that point we had Larry Levan, who was classed as a superstar DJ because he played at Paradise Garage. You know. But it kind of as you got to meet these people, you realise that they weren't superstars. They were just people having fun, taking a lot of drugs and having a really good time. Yeah. Do you get know what I mean? Like myself. Yeah. You know, unlike the, most of those people, I didn't know when
0: to stop. Okay. So we've got we've touched on one of the uh, defining characteristics I suppose of your early DJing career. Um yeah. what can you remember your first drug? Uh
1: my first drug. Yeah, it was my first thing the drug I ever took was cocaine poppers. I did pop, I used to do poppers before that, you know, amyl nitrate. Yeah yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And
1: then I kind of I I moved on I didn't even smoke at that point. I I didn't smoke until I was 21. Uh, And then I remember the first time I ever took cocaine, I hated it. I actually hated the feeling. It made me feel really paranoid. Uh, And I thought, I'm never doing that again. And then I one night I was outside heaven, which is in the movie, I tell you, in the film. And I I met with uh, a gang of guys going into heaven, and one of them happened to be Freddie Mercury. And I hung out with that lot. And then we all went back to their house in Holland Park and um, and someone offered me cocaine, Freddie offered me a line of cocaine. And I was like, oh, I don't do it. I don't like it. And of course, did it straight away. And uh, that was kind of it. That was my drug of choice. And you know, it, then it, it, I didn't do it for a little while. I remember I didn't do it for about, I think about six, seven months, I didn't go near it again. And then there was a real major uh, heroin uh, vibe thing going on in London. Majority of people in London and on the club scene were really big smack heads, and so I was kind of anti that anyway because all my friends were taking that. So you know, it was it was inevitable that I was going to end up being a junkie. You know, it's, <laughs> it's in my in, blood.
0: Yeah, I get it. I get it. So cocaine obviously is a, a good drug for people that are partying a lot. And how often were you going out? Was it seven nights a week? Was, was life was and partying just one one yeah. big sort of mesh?
1: Well, I mean, you know, I, I kind of suddenly. I I had no goals. I wasn't one of these people that thought, right, okay, in a year's time I want to be this, and then I want to go on to progress to that. I never, I never had that. I was always, you know, I, like I always have been in the moment, and I kind of just, you know, I I just I arrived. clubbing was my life. Clubbing was everything. Suddenly, you know, I'd gone from being this inverted, you know, kind of shy, hiding behind my fat, hiding behind things, to actually being discovering who I was and you know so clubbing was it was it was it become my life it become a job it become everything you know so I was out seven nights a week and you know slowly but surely those out of those seven nights so I, it would be three or four nights that I'd do drugs and then it would be five or six nights that I did drugs you know it was never ever a problem the first I didn't I never had a drug
0: for, for the first 12 years it wasn't a problem so until 20 20- eight sort of age? Yeah, 27.
1: 27. It'd become a problem. I, mean, I, remember getting, I remember on my 27th birthday, I remember saying to my mum, I don't want to live beyond 27. And my mum was like, why? And I was just like, I had no, I just thought 27 was like kind of the end of the road type thing. And my mum was like, don't be so stupid. 27 <laughs> is one of the best years of your life. And I was just like, no, no, no. And of course, when I got to 28, I was gutted. <laughs> so for some reason I was gutted that I didn't die when I was 27. Uh, like that, you know, I gave it a good fucking shot. I can assure you. And it kind of just, and that's kind of when it all, kind of, just like the drug taking, the, the the drug use become abuse. It went from use to abuse, and I was I started abusing drugs. I started, you know, I'd be up for four or five nights on the trot, you know.
0: So, talking about the the years before drug use became abuse. Yeah. What was a typical week like? Talk, talk me through a typical so week. So I would
1: go out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night. You know, I would literally, at that point in time, I was still living in Battersea, which is where my mum and dad lived, which is just over the river, which is central London. So it was, I mean, you know, I had it everything, it took 10 minutes, 20 minutes in to get into Soho from my house. It's like, uh, so I kind of just, I would be out. And because I was living at home, I didn't ever, ever want to go home had all these illegal drinking clubs in Soho. So you would go to these illegal drinking clubs, like 79 one was called. And we had a club called the Pink Panther, which was a gay 24 hour illegal drinking club. And you'd go, uh, about three in the morning and by 6am it would have been raided by the police and you'd go out and you walk around the block and you'd go back in and kind of, that was just, that added to it. Everything was just like, you know, the thrill of the police raiding something. And, you know, so that would be like Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. Then Thursday, so you're, Friday. Not D, you're
0: not DJing through the week, early no, on in the week? No, no, not I DJ
1: on Tuesday. I was running my own night on Tuesday at the WAG club uh, at that point in time. And then I was running Saturday nights at the WAG club as well. Uh, and at the time, the WAG club was like the place to go. I mean, there would be a queue around like a three-hour waiting to get in like on a Saturday night and we we basically were on the door off our nuts saying no you can't come in you can come in we're just getting whatever we want you're, a, to cunt and you're and, uh, a cunt and you're a cunt and you're
0: basically
1: a cunt. yeah totally like that yeah. you know and uh we say sorry you're, you're you, you can't come in you're off your nut. <laughs> coming coming like,
0: yeah, yeah 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 calling cat. And, uh,
1: totally <laughs> and uh and taking ket. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah it was it was, it, it was uh, a pretty uh you know, so that was fr- Saturdays. And then what happened was a new club opened called the Limelight, which was opened in a big church. And in the 80s, it was like the place, The late 80s, early 90s, the place to go. And they basically brought me in. You know, yet again, I met with the owner called, a guy called Peter Gation. And they had these clubs all over. They had one in New York, which was the place to go. They, and they had one in Atlanta. And they wanted to open this one in London. It was on Shaftesbury Avenue in a disused church. And I remember having a meeting and saying, "You need to have, you need to employ me." <laughs> and they were like, "Why?" And I said, "Because if you don't, I'll just annihilate like, your your club." And it's just like the bullshit that would come out of my mouth. And these guys were like, "Yeah, yeah." So they employed me. <laughs> and within like within a month of working for them before it even opened, I'd become like the musical director of the limelight. And I was like on a retainer of ridiculous amounts of money. And it was at that point. You know, I had suddenly had all this money I had to, like, I had my own office. I was, you know, I, I just turned 18. You know, I was kind of like just running so many different things and, and little projects and scams going on in London. And, you know, it kind of just, I got swept away with it. I got swept away with it, you know. I, ha- I felt that I had to be there every night. I had to take the more drugs than everybody else. Uh, and it kind of just, you know, that kind of just become who I was. So,
0: it, was, it was fucking awful awesome. speaking as someone who started club promotion in 2006, which is early by today's standards but late by yours um <laughs> and me and my business partners started running events and I've got a very similar story without the the hectic drug use and the and the the celebrities and boy George and stuff like that unless you count Geordie show um and no you don't no you don't okay um <laughs> Let me <show> you, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah um, but I understand, and I can speak from personal experience about what it's like to be a young guy who finds himself having never been in a position of authority or, uh, being renowned, uh, potentially not being liked by people or, or having people need you. And mm-hmm. that sense very quickly can become your identity and you can That's wrap cool. yourself around it. And what I found slightly different to yours, um, me and my business partner, started associating uh or at least me not not darren he's a lot more it was a lot more stable than me uh he's got two kids he's now he's, he's completely unstable now he's got two he's well, got two it. kids and two dogs it's impossible for so,
1: him out of pasture.
0: yeah oh for sure um uh what i did was i started associating my sense of uh self-worth and um well-being with the success of the business
1: of course you do it's,
0: it seems like with you, perhaps it was to do with well, the depth of the partying, to do with well, the level just, of renown.
1: It had become more about ego and the ego got so big because, you know, people were blowing smoke up my house. I couldn't do no wrong. I was having two nights a week, running two nights a week at the limelight with my name on. My name was everywhere. I'd suddenly gone from being this fat, obnoxious kid to being in the in the Sunday papers. You know, I was suddenly in supplements, I was suddenly doing interviews and things. And it just like kinda of got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I kind of you know, in those days fashion had just come into play again. I was like we're head showing to Jean Paul Gautier. You know, I was wearing everybody wanted to me to wear their clothes. It was insane. And you know, of course, you know, you give you, you give something those that stuff to an eighteen year old. They don't know what to do with it.
0: It's going to lack
1: Exactly. I'm like, you know, it's like fucking pig in shit. You know, <laughs> seriously. You know, I, I had no tools to deal with that. Do you know what I mean? I kind of just, you know, I, the only way I could deal with it was by taking loads of drugs and, and riding it. What did the, how did the drugs help? Well, the kind of the drugs kind of led me into this, like, false sense of, okay, they fed the ego. Mm. They fed the ego. They kind of took away the fear. You know, I, uh, you know, the fear of being found out. I've always suffered from imposter syndrome. You know, and I always had that fear of, oh my God, I'm going to get seen, found out here. You know, uh, and kind of, you know, the the enjoyment of what I actually started off by doing, by DJing. You know, I kind of always, when I look back on, it, I always think because it was never uh, a chosen job and it was never a chosen path. I think that's why I kind of tried to destroy it so much. Do you get what I mean? It kind of was like it wasn't something that I studied to do. I didn't set out to be that. I kind of was just like, okay, this is what I've fallen into. I think it's certainly (gasps) better. George says it quite nicely in the film that when everybody else was off brand building, I was off partying. Everyone else was building a name for themselves. I was off just building parties. Do you know what I mean? And because I always had that fear of, uh, of I, I, I always had a fear of success it's really weird the bigger I got the more destructive I got so and I've always been like that I'm still like it today but today I kind of have it capped and I, I work a program around it but, you know so there'll be areas where suddenly my career is going like this and then I'll be over here pouring paraffin on something to to, to create a smoke screen so that you can't really see who I am because it's you know it's it's a, it's a it's a, it's a weird one. And, you know, at that point in time, I got success was given to me on on such a, a, a massive scale. I mean, you know, I was doing TV stuff. I had a show on Kiss. I was doing, oh, it was all there. It was all there. Yeah. And, you know, and of course, my mouth, the way I was destroyed that. Do you Giga know O'Levine. I, mean? I would remember I used, Janet Streetport at that point was like head of BBC TV for youth. And she gave me like this job. She, like, she'd lined up all this presenting stuff for me and she, as a part of the build-up to it, I'd have to go and outside concerts and vox pop where you'd stand outside concerts and say, hey, what, why have you come to see so-and-so, and, you know, all that rubbish. And I couldn't speak. I'd be so coaxed off my nut. I couldn't speak and she'd come and take the mic off me and then, like, just send me home. And, you know, there was so many of those golden opportunities that I always thought, doesn't matter, I'll get it again. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of the ego had taken over. I suppose what, kind you,
0: of what what the drugs do is they s- stop you from being able to ask or do that introspection. They don't mm. allow you to ask those questions because no. they create a buffer between what you see inside and how you feel. And it means that yeah. you don't ever have to worry about, well, hang on, maybe I should feel anxious, upset, regretful, whatever about Janet Street Porter just saying that I blew it again or this not happening or that not happening or whatever. And obviously, you know, drugs are a, a pretty surefire way to stop you from ever having to feel feelings.
1: Totally. It changes the way I felt. Like all drugs, you know, we, I I would take drugs to change the way I felt because I was never happy within who I was. You know, I never got to that point where I just think, oh, you know what, your shit stinks. It does. I never ever got that feeling. I always had to cu- counteract the way I was feeling by taking those drugs or drinking on it because I always felt less than. I never felt that I deserved the, the success that I had because it wasn't a chosen success. I never felt that um, I deserved to be where I was because it wasn't something I set out to do, it was something I fell on. Do you get what I mean? So therefore, I, I kind of like cuckooed everybody else's nests, mm-hmm. you know? Mm. And it was kind of weird, you know, with that drug of choice, that like cocaine, it's kind of like, there's a really famous line that Mark Harmon once said was, that cocaine will get get you ready for the party, but it won't take you to the party. You know, so you'll spend 16 hours getting ready at home, and you won't leave the flat.
0: And it's true. You know, I saw what it was like for me. Yeah. Was there never a, a concern with money? Like, I know you no. were getting paid a lot, but it sounds like you were sniffing even more. Never. I,
1: I, I You know, I'd, I'd got myself to this position where I was getting paid. You know, you got to remember at that point in time, we all become superstars. After that, the Oakenfolds, my whole circle of friends, if you go back and look at all those slides, there was Danny Ramplin, there was Mips, Paul Oakenfold, Sasha, all of, that, all of these DJs suddenly became the biggest superstars, and we would be—I would be traveling up the motorway, down the motorway, playing all over the place for vast amounts of money. You know, and of course, I was on this massive retainer from the limelight and the likes of that. So it always went upwards. Do you get what I mean? And then suddenly, uh, you know, uh, I was getting record deals. I bought a house in in central London, which was incredible. It's called the, the cottage on Queen Square, very apt. And uh, you know, I had suddenly. I had this wealth, you know, I had so much money. I had so much money. And you couldn't, sniff, and you just, weren't
0: sniffing enough to, to not, make a dent in that?
1: Ah, uh, I was sniffing enough to make a considerable dent in it, but it always kept coming. So whatever I spent, I knew I was getting again. Uh, I, it was always like, you know, I remember that house that I talked to, you know, when I left that house, I got I, I got thrown out of that, lost that house. Uh, and the day that I left it, I left one mirror which was the mirror I used to chop lines on. Mirror. Left everything else there, just the TV, everything. And everyone was like, "Well, why are you not taking stuff?" We could. I was like, "It's fine. I get it again." Gialloine, and it kind of was always that throwaway lifestyle. That kind of just brought me to my knees in the end.
0: Yeah, very, very blase. Again, it—it's weird, right? Because only with the benefit of hindsight do we look at that version of Tony with sympathy, right? Because at mm-hmm. the time it must have been, this guy's got it all sorted. Like he's got so much, he's getting free drugs. He's basically getting paid for being a dickhead. Like he's getting, you know, and totally- it, it's what I think we need to see, or people need to try and look with a little bit more nuance at young success. You know, you've got mm-hmm. DJs like Avicii. I'm friends with tons and tons of DJs. that. That's
1: Avicii. You know, Avicii, you know, oh, another one, do you know what I mean? Just couldn't cope with success, couldn't cope with the idiots. Because so, what happens is when we get to that, that that place, we're not on our own. We've got 30 other dickheads with us. And those other 30 dickheads are telling you what you want to hear. They're, they're filling you up. You know, what, what happens is, you know, you, you have suddenly realise that you're the party. And... And when you when you get to that place where you think you're the party, everybody else thinks you're the party. So you know they fuel what your your beliefs are, and because you're a way and means for them to get more. And you know the realization is the day that you get clean is the day that you realize you're not the party. Do you get what I mean? And and you know with people like Avicii
0: and they don't stand a chance. They didn't stand a chance. Do you get what I mean? It was there. And it you know. It's difficult. It's hard to say to people, "You should feel sorry for this young superstar who's worth all this money, who's got all these record but deals." Those, those
1: people around him, what they didn't want it around him. But, you know, the the the, the 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 yes people that are pulling the strings that, that behind them that are supplying him with drugs. And the day that I remember speaking to him, he wanted to get clean, and you know, he started coming to meetings with us and stuff like that. And you know, the the, the powers that be behind that didn't want that. Man,
0: that's people so don't want that. So because
1: they can't control you they can no longer control you you know it's amy all written all over all over again you know everybody pretends that they don't want you to be in that that position but they can't they you're in that position because they can control you in that position do you get what i mean mm-hmm. i would stop traveling i wouldn't fly anywhere to, like unless i knew there was going to be what i wanted at the other end And i remember one trip i had to go to hong kong and um It was a big money job, and I was like, I'm not going. And I remember getting to the airport, and my manager was like, you've got to get on the plane. And I was like, I'm not fucking going nowhere. You know what I mean? I'd been up for three nights. I mean, I spank as well. And it was like, like, you've got to get on that plane. I was like, I'm not going. And he literally made a phone call, a fake fucking phone call, to this guy. And he got this guy saying, yeah, I'll meet you off the airplane. I've got got an ape for you. And I was talking to this guy, and I was like, okay, great. Got on the plane. The guy didn't even exist. It was somebody, one of his mates. So I go I end up in Hong Kong, and I was there for four days, five days, and um, I couldn't get any. I couldn't get my drug of choice, and all I could get was ease. <laughs> so I remember doing like, fucking untold ease. Hong and Kong then,
0: ease in the nineties oh, must have Hong been Kong absolute ease. rocket fuel. Yeah, fucking
1: mental. And you know, <laughs> and I ended up. I, I set fire to the hotel room, set fire. and like, yeah, I, I woke up. I was smoking in my hotel room and stepped by to the bed. And I woke up in hospital covered in iodine, bright orange iodine. They'd covered me from red stone. I was like, where am I? And it was like, and um, yeah, I tried to blame it on the light bulbs. I was like, no, it must have been the light bulbs around the mirror. And it was like fucking smoking in bed. But I would so, I'd literally so off my nut on ease. And after that, I was kind of just, thought, I'm not doing this again. Do you know what I mean? I'm not flying anywhere. And I would get to the airport and just decide, no, I'm going back to the dealer's house. So i would become a loose cannon. So people stop booking me, stop flying me out to places, which for somebody of me like me at that point in time was, was great, because I just thought, oh, I ain't got to go anywhere. Good, because I can still earn that money here. It's and you, want,
0: you wanted the familiar mentalness of home, not the of unfamiliar course. mentalness of, of abroad.
1: You know, I had a triangle towards the end, which I always explain to people uh, when I meet them. You know, I had a, there was a triangle of addiction. It was, you know, uh, it, it, I would leave my house. I would go to the dealers. I would stay at the dealers. I would leave the dealers, go to work, go back to my house for two days, then go back to the That was the triangle. And it, then it was also alcohol, cocaine, cock. Cock, alcohol, cocaine—that was it. That was up to free. I could never do one of the, one without the other two. Yeah. And it was the same with it the same as, as my pattern. You know, uh, traveling or, or going out of my comfort zone, and then not towards the end. It had to be set in stone. I needed to know where I was going. and I needed to know that I was going to get what I wanted.
0: Isn't it interesting that you're out of control in yeah. in some regards, but mm. completely over overly controlling of your own life in other regards
1: you know i would say it's my shit but you know it was my life was shit but it was my shit and it was like you know i i you know i could control the little that i had to control and that's all i needed to control Mm. anything beyond that going to the airport checking in getting on a plane fuck that why do i need to do that do you know what i mean? I'll just sell that or that house can go or this can go, that can go. And that was, that was always a much easier option, you know, and I I think towards the end of my using, I was only happy when I had no money because I knew I wasn't, I couldn't use, you know, I, 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 it'd be a Wednesday and I couldn't even afford a packet of cigarettes, but I knew Thursday I'd I'd be working again, do you know what I mean? Mm. So for for that Wednesday I would have, there would be some ease in this disease that enabled me to sleep all right and just think okay and i say i don't need to leave the house today
0: so you you said that your drug of choice was cocaine was that pretty much predominantly what it was or
1: oh no 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 that was a drug of choice you know the the drug of, of of Uh, Any other drug that I got my hands on, you know, I used uh, tomazepam, diazepam, rohypnol. They were kind of like the pegging parts of the cocaine. So I would take cocaine. I would take downers to suppress the cocaine. I would drink alcohol to level the cocaine. And then I would take more. And then, of course, I discovered freebasing and crack. And then I discovered crystal meth. And, you know, it's just uh, the, the natural progression. So anyone, <laughs> it was, it was a it natural, natural pro, it was a natural progression, you know, suddenly there'd be a new drug and someone, oh, you need to try this. And I'd be like, oh, oh, I don't like it. And then boom, Bob's drunk. I'm on that for two years. Do you get what I mean? It was kind of like anything that could take me somewhere else like than being in here and being in here.
0: Was there anything, anything? that was too much for you? Anything that was too strong or that you said you didn't want to do? Crystal meth, the first time I did crystal meth, I just thought I'm never, ever
1: touching that again. The comedown was so bad. I remember sitting on on Vauxhall Bridge, wanting to throw myself in, because I lived right by it at that point. And, and I was like sit, sitting there and it was raining. And I remember just sitting there thinking, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore, you know. And then I thought, oh, fuck, I ain't got any cigarettes. And I went, all right. so I went home to get my cigarettes. And of course, once I got home, I sat and had a cigarette. I thought, I'm not going back out again. But, you know, it was like, it was like if it had been, but two more minutes on that bridge, I probably would have jumped in, you know, because the come down was so severe, and I thought, you know what, I'm never doing that again, and and I wasn't the never doing the drug again. I was never going to come down again from it, so I, I had every intention of still smoking it. But I just thought if I leveled it and worked it out so that I didn't have to come down, like I didn't do with cocaine. You know, people just go, oh, you must have heavy come down. Never had a come down. I was always on it. Do you get what I mean? You know, as I say to people. When I, you, you know, I used and abused drugs for 28 years and there was never a point where I, I wasn't on drugs for 28 years. I was on something which I, even when I slept, you know, and I, I, and, you know, I knew that, you know, the, the last five years I, I would sleep in, when I finally went to sleep, I would sleep in the recovery position because I was that scared that I was going to choke on my own vomit every night. It's so bizarre,
0: so awful. So that's getting us towards 27 now, 27, 28, I'm going to guess. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's when you said it really started to turn into a, like a spiral out of control.
1: Well, well, you know, the crystal meth didn't come until a lot later. So the crystal meth was, the crystal meth was at the end of my drug using, uh, about 27, 28. That kind of was like, you know, we'd gone through ecstasy. We'd gone back onto cocaine. Um, I'd moved to New York. I moved back from New York. I lived in New York for a year. Thinking that, okay you know because ecstasy was really good at that point in time in new york <laughs> so i thought oh i'm going to stay there and
0: just thought stay just traveling there. around the world's on an na- uh, international drugs tour totally 100 percent,
1: because i could earn the money that i was getting and i couldn't command that money for those audiences and, um so yeah kind of like it, it kind of just gone from partying the party just didn't stop it, it kind of went from party to three-day binges, four-day binges, and then the psychosis started, and kind of, I started to lose the plot a little, and kind of would reel it back in and just think, I can't do this, and I would end up in really dark situations, and end up in places that no human being should ever end up, and I kind of just thought, used to think, okay, I've got a real problem, this is a problem. So, what I would do is would just change dealer or I would change the situation I would change the scenario I would
0: change circles of friends so it's a proxy would, it's a proxy I, for making progress isn't it it's' mm. it's, it's an analogy uh, an analogous situation that works side by side with what could be moving forward, but it's not it's just a it's just different
1: yes, yeah, different. I used to call it hoovering out the hoover. Because you know, it's like it's like you know, you stick you 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 stick the nozzle of the Hoover into the Hoover bag, and all that's going around is the same old shit being regurgitated constantly. But you you feel that you're doing something about it. Well, um, people, i'm actually cleaning people like, feel
0: people do that in all sorts of all sorts of ways right you know perfect we'll example let's go to another um area that i touch on a lot which is productivity a lot of people will talk about how they they've got this new nootropic or i've really worked out my my morning caffeine timing and i'm like dude you work with your phone on your desk next to your laptop like no, you're, no, right. you're sweating the small <clears throat> stuff um to talk about Psychosis. I'm
1: microdosing. Yeah, yeah,
0: bro. You've got like you've got Twitter open on your laptop. That is not where you're doing your work. Um, I got a little story for you about Christoph. He supports Eric Prids at the moment. He's um, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. DJ from the, the north of North yeah. of England. I've known him for ten years. Phenomenal guy. And I had him on the podcast, and he yeah. um he was telling us about a story about when he was at the back end of his world tour, and he'd been on tour I think for around about six weeks, and he went to bed in a hotel on the Thursday night, South America somewhere. Yeah. And he remembers looking at his calendar and thinking the next time that I get a bed, proper bed is like Tuesday. It's Thursday. And he's yeah. got a gig, uh, yeah. goes straight from the gig to the airport, get on the plane get a yeah. couple of hours sleep, do all this sort of stuff. So um, that finishes up at the end of a, a, a long tour where he's kind of real intense. And he doesn't have a tour manager either, which is a, a, yeah. an interesting one for him. So he plays this big show, has this big high, has all this energy, goes back to the hotel. Exactly. It's him and room service on his own in a dark room, right? So he's got this in, incredible crescendos of up and down. And then he gets back to Newcastle, uh, gets into his house, and essentially enters a, a state of psychosis that's um, from everything that's happened over the last six weeks, Anyway, it's a morning time, about five in the morning, six in the morning, and he comes to and he describes this situation. He'd been watching like QVC, late night TV, because that's the only thing that's on at five in the morning. And he realized that his hair was shit. So he went to Asda and he comes to to find himself sat on the floor of the toiletries aisle in Asda and he's got one of every hair product out on the floor and he's just taking a little bit and slapping it on his head and taking a little bit of this wax and slapping it on his head and taking a bit of yeah. this gel and slapping it on his head and he comes to and he's like what am i what am i what am i doing here oh, uh not too sure stands up gets a floret of broccoli 48 dishwasher tablets and just walks out and it was he was like <laughs> and at that moment i thought do you know i probably could do with speaking to somebody I'm like mm. fucking hell and you know that what? is that's just from sleep
1: dep. yeah I mean, I used to stay up for four or five days, and I would be out. and I remember there was this one, one, one time I was in Liverpool Street Station, train station, and I was with all my friends. And I was like talking to people, and, and then they were morphing into the wall. and I was like, and I was like running after people, going, "Oh, did you see my mate?" and literally, I was on my own. I don't know how I got there. I lived. I lived, like, uh, in Brick Lane at that point. It's a Liverpool Street station. Obviously, i travelled there to go home. But, and I was, like, talking to people, and then cars would pull up, and I was trying to get in cars, and the cars weren't really there. It was insane, and it went on and on and on. I managed to get home. And I remember being in my flat, and I remember my boyfriend saying to me, Tony, you do realise... These people aren't here. And I'm like, what are you on about? I'm in the bed. I was in the living room having a party with like eight or eight or nine of my friends, all dancing and, and literally having a party. They weren't there. And I remember eating soup on the bed. And like he was like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm eating. And he was like, Tony, you realize this isn't real? And he called an ambulance. And the ambulance come. And they were going to section me. And they took me to the hospital, and they did all these things. And luckily, it's because I hadn't slept. I'd gone into this state. My brain had completely gone. But I, it was at that moment, that, the two days afterwards, I realized why, how people get committed and how they get sectioned, where their minds go. My mind had gone. I'd lost my mind. And people were like – I was talking to people, and they were like morphing, literally morphing into car seats. Fucking mental. Oh. And that was just from sl- that was from being awake all that time and taking so much cocaine mm-hmm. that my brain couldn't go. My brain started. And that was kind of at those turning points of where life had, do- had suddenly got a lot, lot, a lot, lot darker because, you know, I was losing it. I was losing the plot.
0: Even the most balanced among us, I think, are only five days of no sleep away mm. from being completely Insanity. mental, from being no, that, that hobo on the street that shouts that shouts words and has poo on the back of his shoe, 100. Like percent All of us are, and the the thin line of sanity that all of us are, are kind of wobbling on. Right, you're only mm. a, a couple of travesties in your life away from something sending you down a spiral, and the the good the problem that I, I feel so much like sympathy for, for the the that particular area of your career because. Had you have had little breaks, had it have been like five years on, one year off, five years on, one year off, during that one year, you could have done some work, built up some resilience, you know, started to do mm. the introspection that you required to be able to... But you to know then-
1: what, if, like, Chris, if I'd had a year off and I went back to, into what I was doing, I would have died. Why? Because my body, would, my body wouldn't have been able to take the, what, what I was doing again. Do you know what I mean? It's like literally... You know, my body had got so accustomed to what I was putting in it, it kind of built up a resilience. You know, <laughs> my liver, my kidneys and everything, you know, kind of become dependent on what I was doing. When you stop doing that stuff and you take time out, and, you know, addiction isn't something that you can switch off and switch on in that sense. So when I, if I, you know, say I got clean and I have a relapse, that relapse won't suddenly go back to one glass of wine and one line. It will go straight back to six grams of Coke and smoking crystal meth all night where I left off. My body won't be able to take that. So my body will go into shock and shut down. And what happens is you organs can start to shut down and the, mind, the brain goes. That's what happens is what kills so many people. So l- let's look at Amy Winehouse. You know, her body couldn't take it. She started drinking again, and that's what happens. You know, it people really underestimate the power of of what the what alcohol and other drugs do to the body. Do you get what I mean? And kind of, so taking time out. Was never an option anyway. <laughs> surprisingly,
0: surprisingly, actually, it was one of the best, safest things that you could have done was not taking a break. Yeah, totally, hundred percent. That's interesting.
1: You know, and I used to call it chemical scaffolding. It was what kept me because people were like, "How, how come you're still a fucking still up, still awake, still alive?" And it's like oh, it's chemical scaffolding, of
0: course. You got these structures, yeah. right? That, that aren't 100%. part of you, but but that you're relying 100%. on. Yeah, I, I totally get that. So before we move on to kind of recovery and, and the rest of this stuff, mm. I wanted to ask what was one of the heaviest parties that you can remember going to? Might be the heaviest or just one that comes to mind?
1: I kind of think every weekend when we did trade, I used to be resident at a club called Trade, which was at Turnmills. It's a legendary club. And Trade was one of the first places in the the country that opened at 3 a.m. and went on till midday. And it was... uh, yeah, you probably would have been, got that there. <laughs> yeah. not proper yeah, proper Burkhardt style stuff. They yeah. they, it was, yeah, listen, it, it, um, Bergheim had nothing on trade, trust me. Trade was like the mecca. It had like an alley called Muscle Alley, where well, the Muscle Mary's hung out. You had a heavy techno room with Tony DeVitt and all those guys. We did trade like, they had archways where you would queue up to buy your drugs, like proper dealer shops. It was insane. And trade was like, you know, it was groundbreaking, it was revolutionary, it was like the place to go. So, every weekend kind of would be the heaviest party. And was you that your I mean? you, Were
0: you playing there or just out? Yeah, there? I was resident there, yeah. Got you, got you.
1: At my own room called Trade Light. And uh, I would, you know, that's kind of where the Disco Jesus thing came from because we could turn seven records into a 12 hour set. Do you know what I mean? It was just like, but it was insane, you know. So, I mean, there was so many. And then I would leave there and go on all day Sunday, all night Sunday. To go to dpm and then all day monday tuesday wednesday so every weekend was kind of like that and then i would then after that there were other clubs that we started called orange and fire in london we started all of those venues they all come from my my desire to take drugs you know um, and my friend's desire to take drugs we couldn't stop we so we would create these after hour parties
0: Speaking as someone who's been in the industry for a long time, and a lot of the people that are in it as well listening might get this sense. There's a lot of the things that you're talking about here that we now in the industry nowadays are trying to recreate, but it's Mm. like it's the kiddies version. It's the nerfed version, right? So you were talking about um, the party, the, uh, the late night drinking club that's open 24 hours and then the police come and they shut it down and then everyone kind of runs around the corner and then they come back. Like, mm. there is secret parties that get done now, but it's the, all that happens is you get issued it via text message at 7pm on the night, and it's... That's rave culture. But, That's rave culture. We did that in the Acid House days. But,
1: You'd go to a phone box and have to call a number, and they'd tell you where what field to go to. Okay, you've got to go 40 miles from here, right? When you get there, go to another phone box. And it was like... You know, it was like being in Scooby fucking Doom. It was like trying to get to that phone box to find a field and then you'd get there. You'd be in a field for two hours. The police would come and raid it. 40,000 people would be sent home. And that's kind of what it is. That's rape culture. You know, people long for that today.
0: Yeah. People long for the thrill of that today. You you look at this now and, you know, like I say, you have these sorts of parties but it's the tickets fucking sold through fat soma or ticket web or fucking ticket arena right it like, like it's not it's not underground it's all oh right yeah it's people yeah. it's people trying to recreate oh, cool that to sense say. of the of the golden era right and it is it's kind of i know that it's tragic we, and it's i it's, mean you it's, know
1: Ask ask those people that are trying to create that to name four of the tracks from that time that they're trying to recreate and the artist's name. And I guarantee you they don't know them. You know, they they read about rave culture. They dream about rave culture. You know, there's something really amazing. You know, at the moment with this lockdown and uh, the way we are, we all put in our houses, something really creative and magical is going to come from this. A really creative and magical because you know it's, it's times like this that some stuff starts to grow our juices flow in our brains and we think oh i've got a really good idea let's do this and you know st- some really amazing stuff's going to come from this
0: i saw um, um, jackie Morn, who's one of my good buddies yeah. just been out with roger sanchez in ibiza yeah. producing and um they're fucking they're producing tracks at 130 bpm because and they can fuck off <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll tell I'll he pass that on. Right I'll, I'll pass that on to him. But um you know, you know uh, in 6 months, 12 months time, there is going to be some ridiculous EPs. There's going to be some amazing yeah, books. There is-
1: You know, there's going to be, you know, all of that stuff's coming. You know, what's pissing me off the most about this is when I keep hearing these idiots, you know, I'm not going in saying any names, but there's certain DJs setting up petitions to say, we should have a seven-day party. And it's like, fuck off, man. Do you understand that? nightclubs and pubs are going to be the, like the lowest of the lowest right down there on the, on the, on the, after gyms, uh,
0: the after cafes, after restaurants,
1: it's all got schools and colleges and, and, and factories are going to come first. It's going to be a slow turn. We ain't going to see a nightclub open this year. No way will we see open a nightclub of, of Ministry of Sound or any of those big clubs. They're not going to open until October, November, December. No way, this is not going to go away. It's like Italy and all these places. No club's going to open in Italy until there's a vaccine. They've already said it. You know, why would they go down, get get it under wraps and say, okay, you can go out partying again. I know, you can go back to the gym and start spreading this again. It's not going to happen. Use your head. There isn't gonna be no big VJ celebrations. There's not. What's gonna happen is Harbour other avenues are gonna come out of it. And it's not gonna be live streaming from your bedroom. But it's gonna be other avenues. Did you
0: go see, on Did you see the defective live defected live yes, festival? I did. Now yes, that that is a shit hot way to do it. I know everyone's doing live streams, a lot of DJs are. Yeah, yeah. You know, it it's getting a bit doing, old now, I did, but, but I mean,
1: I did one the other week for the Evening Standard. I did one last week for Harvey Nichols, uh, live from my garden. And this Friday, I'm doing a massive one, which is going to get released tomorrow. Oh. I'm doing Victoria Beckham's birthday party for the NHS, live from
0: live a virtual, from bu- virtual birthday party.
1: Yeah, it's her birthday. She wants to invite all the key workers in the NHS to her birthday party via my garden. So I'm DJing for two hours set, playing all of her, her favourite tracks, um, live from our garden for the nhs and people can donate and they could also download the next day they can download the playlist and they can also download the, the set uh, and all the money goes to the nhs and key workers that's so that's this friday and that, that's going to go out just from her instagram feed alone to 28 million uh then from david bees i think he's got something like Hundred, yeah. It 100 so it's going to go out. It's going to go out
0: by he's. If they, as get well. the, if they get the kids involved as well, I think the kids. have oh, are got all, a, a twenty mil, twenty mil. Like, they're all going to and... be
1: involved because they're all calling in to ask for tracks. So the whole thing is just going to level up and level up and level up. That's amazing. So man. we've been working on it for a week. So they get, they're going to release it tomorrow, which is Tuesday. Um, the, the 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 evidence. They're going to release like the, the press release. It's going to go out tomorrow. So I'm really excited about that. I can't just think – And then. I'm doing a one for British Vogue and that's it. I'm kind of just like, you know, this is my job. This is my career. I'm not a bedroom DJ. Do you know what I mean? Right now, um,
0: everyone's a bedroom. Well, you're a garden DJ.
1: I am a garden DJ, yeah. But you know what? <laughs> it's fine because, you know, that's my career. I'm not I'm not DJing to 42 people on a live feed that most people do. Do you know what I mean? This is Taylor.
0: Taylor. So for the people that are just listening, there is a very, very nice doggo that's just been brought into the middle of the screen. I'm not. I, I'm sorry, Simon. Sorry, you don't understand my love for dogs, and now I, I'm not going to be able to focus on anything except Taylor's for. amazing. Except for Taylor.
1: Taylor is uh, Taylor's fourteen. Wow. And uh, she's the savior of all of all life. She's the best thing in the world. She has such an amazing spirit, and she's she's like everyone says that about their dogs. But trust me, Taylor. Taylor has this magic about her. She's amazing. amazing.
0: Well, I'm looking for. I'm she's looking forward to seeing her during the live stream. Um, I, the best thing that I've seen avid listeners will know what i'm about to say best thing i've seen so far in lockdown is my friend david coverdale who was supposed to be going away on a stag do to istanbul and his his missus organized a virtual stag do where he (laughs) he had all of his friends on skype video call and he got dressed up he had the inflatable hat and they were drinking and they did the full night that was a virtual stag do and i was like that's fucking sick um before we go but
1: that's it chris it's all about creativity, and it's about you know what we make the best of what we got, and it's about I think what people will keep are forgetting in this whole lockdown, is like I can't go out, I can't, go. I'm losing, I've lost fifty quid from not doing that job. Look at what you have got instead of what you haven't got, and you know what people are moaning about being locked indoors. You're not locked indoors, you're at home safe. That's the difference. Do you get know what I mean? It's it's not about being like oh I can't do this, I can't do that, just. just breathe man this is
0: this is a magical time it's highlighted to me the people that have a growth mindset and the people that don't and the people that have that growth mindset i'm seeing flourishing in this situation and the people that don't i'm seeing stagnating and even regressing 100
1: 100 you know uh it's, it's 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 fucking awful time you know i lost my one of my best friends this morning my friend debbie she passed away this from and her mum passed away on sunday last sunday so her sister jane who i grew up with has lost not only a mum but lost her sister in a week from this virus and and then you've got these idiots saying oh you know it's not real it's not happening and and the blah 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 it's just like you know what
0: don't fuck off. Don't get me started on David Icke and London Real. Please yeah, oh, don't, don't.
1: So, so, so many of them. There's so many of these dickheads. And it's just like, you know what? You tell that to the key workers. You tell that to the people that are not being able to say goodbye to their own mums and sisters. Yeah. You know, it's it's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. It really is. It's, it's just, you know. And, you know, and people. Are, the sad thing is people are buying into it. It's like, what the
0: fuck? So there's this thing called compensatory control, right? It's, yeah. it's a, a, a psychological effect. In times of great uncertainty, people will turn to uh, more spurious or more narrative-based solutions. So for instance, someone that's given an uh, uncertain medical diagnosis is more likely to see patterns in meaningless static on a TV. And the reason is that we would much sooner believe that the virus is going around because of the plan of some malign scientists or the transhumanist lizard people Whatever it might be, rather than just chance mutation, and that leads us to want to create these crazy conspiracies because it gives us it gives us a semblance. It personifies the the virus as the, at the behest of someone. Someone chose this to happen, not just that it's fucking course, random yeah. chance. You know? Yeah, of course, of course. Um, I w- I want to ask if you were to go back, you might not even be able to remember this. If you were to go back and go across most of the the big bits of your DJing career and you needed to absolutely take the roof off with a track, what are some of the tracks that you would drop from, from back then?
1: Oh, do-do, 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 to do, 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 do. Uh, like asking you to choose one of your favourite children. You know, you know it's, what it is, is like, you know, when you ask someone what their favourite tracks are, and, and you know, straight away, you, that person stops to think, because they think, if I say this, it's going to sound like I'm cheesy. If I say that, you know, there's, there's tracks throughout my career that are, that you know, at the right time and the right place you, you will take any roof off, you know. The the old all the classics, Robin S. were lovely. you know, Alison Limerick, all of that stuff that I grew up with that people think she's now on major tracks. You know, someday C.C. C. Rogers in the right place. There's so many amazing amazing electric tracks of, of of every of every era, of every decade that I just like go back to you know that's what's so i'm blessed so blessed so many of my sets that i play these days if, especially for fashion so if so i'm in house dj now for versace so when i do that stuff for, for donatella she wants all the old classics so i can reel that stuff out i had the most amazing time you know i couldn't i could not pinpoint one track and say to you that's it because there's so many mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's so much ma- so many do you get what I mean? Mm. It's kind of just like, you know, I have my own personal favourites that I, I are that tracks that mi- that mean so much to me. Do you get know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, that I wouldn't play out because I get too
0: emotional. Oh wow, yeah, I um, I think Christoph Coszy that I mentioned earlier on. I think he's got a couple of those where he struggles. He sometimes struggles to drop them because he gets too emotionally involved. Also, I've, I'm I'm going to put it it's, out there. You know, it's The
1: biggest drug music is the best and biggest drug i 've ever taken. It has the ability to to transport you to anywhere in the world and and, and to be with people that you're no longer with, are no longer with us. You close your eyes and you play that track they 're there and that's that's the magic of music and you know when i 'm DJing and I, I, and i'm very and I get one of those sets where I can take people on a journey. it always ends in tears always <laughs> you know because yeah. I, I will play a track and I just think. Hmm. You know, like Frankie Knuckles' Tears. I mean, come on. You know, who can't lose it to something like that? Or Barry White, Ecstasy by Barry White. It's just like, you know, they, that, those certain tracks can take me back to that mud-ridden field that I first heard them in. You know, the sounds of blackness, the pressure, will take me straight back to Sound Factory with Frankie Knuckles when the first time he ever played it. You know, there's so many things that that I have so much... Euphoric recall around so many different tracks because I lived those tracks. It's not, I just, no one introduced me to them. I discovered them in a, with, a, with a lot of other people at the right time. And, you know, that's the beauty of it.
0: It's because it's more than the music, right? When you hear a track and the people that are listening will know the old tracks, I think this is why we have particular nostalgia and why. Can I just stop you there? Yeah. They're not old tracks, Chris. You know what I mean? Music doesn't get old. No, my point is tracks that People have... People get old. People think of You know what? It, music music doesn't get
1: old. Music's timeless. The, the perfect track is, is timeless. It's not something that you go, oh, that's a really old track. or that's
0: It's not old. The music's timeless. Let me reframe. Tracks that have been with like, you for a, for a significant duration yeah. of time, tracks that have been with you for years, because what you get... Well, the first time you hear a track, you hear the music and you hear the sounds and you get the emotional effect... But as you hear that track more and more, and you're experiencing something while that track is playing, that track, when it then gets played, is more than the music. It's the compounding of every experience and every time that you have heard that track. So, um, "Teenage Crimes," the Axwell remote of that, was my first season in Ibiza, 2010, yeah. and it's got that really haunting, beautiful kind of vocal. How old very- are you? I'm 32.
1: It broke up
0: then. you know, well, third? Of that, that's all I heard. Thirty-two. 32? Thirty-two. Yeah. Thirty-two. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, Carry on. <laughs> I, you just. I remember that because that was the year two thousand ten was like peak Swedish house mafia. You know, yeah. it was when big house, big room house was kind of all the Yeah. And that that track, man. Like someone can drop that track. Someone can drop Eric drop Eric Pridd's Opus, and I'll lose my yeah. shit. That big swell. Oh, cool. That big sort of ten minute thing.
1: Because it's stored back here. That feeling and that emotion's here. It's not here. This is stupid thinking. It's here. This is the part of our brain that wants to be loved. It wants us to be hugged. It wants us to have that feeling of euphoric recall from our first ecstasy we ever took. It wants all of that stuff. And that's where it's stored. And those memories are stored here. And as soon as you play that track, and you go straight back to that point. Do you get what I mean? It It doesn't get better than that.
0: It doesn't get better. It that, is, you know? know, and that's one of the one of the reasons why but we I... spend a life. We spend our lifetimes chasing that. Yes, you do. We do, and you know. Did, did you ever do, you Ibiza? Did do Ibiza? Did I do Ibiza? Yeah, of course, well, I did. You, you, you did mention it. I, I have not mentioned it today. Talk you, to me you about. You know Ibiza.
1: what? I did Ibiza in in 89, 90, 91, 92. I used to play Amnesia. My best friends owned it. Sandra, Sandra, Sandra and Ho, Sandrine and Jose owned it. And this is before it had a roof. And i used to go over and i used to play with alfredo um uh, we i first went to ib i first played in ib for an eighty in 85 at coup then which is now called privilege <laughs> for a guy called basilio and i spent a, a whole summer out there so yeah i i I've, I've always played ib i was there last year doing glitter box i'm there this summer doing glitter box Amazing. if it happens you know for me the island there's, there's so many memories, you know, there's, there's some amazing hidden films going around at the moment. There's one on YouTube where I'm interviewing Andy Weatherill, uh, in 1989 at Privilege, at Coup. Uh, no, it was at Amnesia. And me and Andy are talking. I went over in, uh, in 89 with a film crew, to beef uh, and me, Danny Rampling, and all that lot—we're all living in the same. We, st- we were all staying in the same villa. And I interviewed everyone. We, felt we filmed the whole island, and then the guy that did the films—I don't know what happened to him. He just disappeared with with the films, and they've just started resurfacing now. Um, there's one on YouTube at the moment, the Andy Weberl one. Um,
0: what can people Tony, search? What should people search if they? That's only
1: Andy Weberl. It comes up 1989 uh amnesia but you know there's like uh there's a there's about a whole week's worth of film footage like, floating around i would love to get you know i know last not last year the year before they were showing them at pikes yeah 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 so i, I you know i want to find out who's got
0: them someone but does, I'm sure, yeah, someone someone does somewhere but, okay so i want to i want to talk about recovery now yeah go you, you're in you're living this life in deep kind of it sounds like there's been some experiences that have been in stark contrast to the fun that maybe sort of teens into 20s into early 20s and then it starts to become from you said use to abuse yeah. is there a, is there an inflection point with this is it the meth on the bridge or is it something else or is oh, it gradual yeah. compounding over time
1: Uh, It just built and built and built and built and you know what happens is with addiction it it strips away and it chisels away at your self-worth, at your self-esteem, it leaves you with nothing and it left me rocking backwards and forwards in a room wanting to kill myself, you know, I lost everything, I lost my teeth, I I pulled all my own teeth out on crystal meth, I I went insane and and what happened was at the end uh, there was a God-given moment one evening I was in a club called The Cross, rocking backwards and forwards as I did, and my partner at the time came in and you know he never came to that club and it was a friday night and i'd already been out for two nights and i just thought i can't cope because he would go to the places that i worked and throw glasses at me and drag me out that night he didn't he came and what he did do was he asked he he looked at me and said what happened to you and that was the god-given moment that changed my life i kind of just looked at him and i just couldn't answer the question and when i tell this story I do a lot cuz i do a lot of talks around the country and in and, and you know within na and other stuff uh it always makes me it makes me want to cry because you know it was that god given moment that changed everything um and it was from that night i that i then decided i couldn't go on because you know i didn't think about where i was going to be next week or what what was coming in, you know, going on a holiday. All I thought about was my funeral. I thought about who was going to be at my funeral, what songs were going to be played at my funeral. Uh, And that was all I had to look forward to was dying. And then suddenly uh, I decided that I didn't want to die. And I got help and I went away to treatment. I went away to rehab for six months. Um, And I came forward to London. Because, you know, when you're in treatment, they say you can't go back to DJing. You can't go back to that life. You can't go back to that boyfriend. You know, <clears throat> you know. and I was like, well, I'm not going back to anything. I'm going forward to it. And I kind of just, I kept that momentum going. And I'm now 13 years, four months clean. Uh, I had nothing when I came into treatment, when I went to, uh, at the end of my using, I had one pair of trainers and one tooth left. And today I have everything. Today I have freedom. I have an amazing house. I have, you know, I, you know. I think gifts beyond my wildest dreams I have freedom I can do whatever I want in life I can't at the moment
0: because I'm a lockdown, but you know, right now you're on modern wisdom podcast which is obviously exactly what you want to be doing
1: yeah no but yeah but you know I can do <laughs> but I had the freedom to do what I want because you know I'm, I'm not chained to anything
0: I've just I've just realized based on your timeline of recovery You've had your yep. dog, you've had your dog Taylor since before yeah. you were clean.
1: Yeah, I have. Yeah. So Taylor was a guilt present for being out for four or five days. And I got Taylor <sighs> as a present for my uh, then partner. And, uh, uh, I remember getting home and, you know, I had another dog called Reggie before that, and we wanted another dog for Taylor, just to keep in company. And we got Taylor and then I got clean and Taylor got pregnant while I was in rehab. Uh, to, uh, she she got raped by the other dog, and uh, yeah. So basically, Taylor's been through everything with me. You know, she's that's what I'm saying. She she has this this uh, spirituality about her that just is incredible.
0: There she is. There she is.
1: So you know, she knows every emotion. She knows every feeling. Ah, uh, yeah. She's like, she's one of a kind, and yeah. So she's she's one of the joys of the recovery.
0: She really is. Do you think it's possible to do the DJing life as a young guy and <laughs> do it in a well-balanced way? Because I know yeah, f- How do you how do you do that? There's some DJs I, I who understand. maybe think I'm a, I'm a uh, in an industry of excess. I get stuff for free. DJs DJs get paid well. Um, some just, some of them some of them too well. I just
1: think that if you if you this is your chosen job and this is your career, you you look at it as your career. You don't look at it as a party. If you look at this, if you're in this because you want to party, then don't bother. You know, you're going to burn yourself out, it's going to end in tears. You look at this as a career and you have a passion for music and you have a love for music and you you want people to un- to understand your passion then do it for the right reasons. And you can do it constructively. As long as you're creative and forever moving forward and not standing in one place or being in the jam jar with the lid screwed on and going around and round and around, then you're not going anywhere. As long as you keep going somewhere, it, it, you can do this. You can do this. You know, you don't have to burn yourself out to do this for, your, for the love of a job. Because if you have, you know, the one thing that we all have in common is the love of music. You know, and... and I kind of think if this is your chosen career and you have, you're have, you gifted within that career of knowing how, you know, some people play music and some people make music, right? A DJ, you know, isn't about playing music. It's about reading a dance floor. It's about knowing your art form. You know, I see so many celebrities coming along going, I'm a DJ now. You're not a DJ. You're pressing play. There's a total difference. You know a, a dj knows how to warm up a room it knows how to take you on a journey that's the difference and i mean if you you don't have to as i said before you're not the party You're there to facilitate the party that's the you know and if you if you stick to those rules you can't you can do this job without burning yourself
0: up i think a lot of now the prevalence of Increased competition amongst nightlife venues and social yeah. media, which is a specialist tool which needs to be used. I think there's a lot of uh-huh. people, a lot of promoters that might be listening who feel that they are the party. I've always made this, this analogy ever since I started, you know, like 15, 13 years ago, that there's two types of club promoters. One of them are people who realize that they can make good money quickly from filling clubs and they have a capacity to it. And yeah. there's a second type that are people who love to party and they've realised, fucking hell, I can get paid to get pissed. And the, yeah, part- the ones that get
1: paid to get pissed don't have to party too long because they'll lose the party.
0: That's it, man. That's the difference.
1: And, and the ones that want to make money quickly aren't around for long either. You know, the ones with the biggest egos, they've got to remember there's going to be another 30,000 other people with the same size ego going to take their place. You know, it's, uh, it's a nightclub. Don't forget that. That's all it is, is a party. Do you get what I mean? You either do it well or fuck off. It's as simple as that.
0: Man, the, the problem is that people believe that it's this crazy transcendent experience, that all of this stuff's going on. And they start to believe they're on hype, right? Especially you've got these people blowing smoke up your ass. You've got drugs and parties and girls and guys yeah. and all the rest of, of it. Course. That's, that's all happening. But you're right. There is... And I've said this to every member of staff that's ever worked for us. There's like there's the Chris speech, right? When they get promoted, they become one of our junior managers. And the Chris speech says, mate, no matter how far in we get, how long you stay with us, whether you become full-time or whatever it is, don't forget that it's people getting drunk in a room to music. And that's exactly all it's that. ever, ever exactly going that. to be.
1: And you know what? You're the promoter of a party. You're not the one making the music. The, the music's the most important thing in there. Don't treat your DJs like they're a bunch of cunts. Do you get what I mean? They're, they're the ones that are doing the treat job. They treat us like cunts.
0: Yeah, yeah, but you DJ, know. DJ dickheads. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so final final few things now. Um, GQ said that you'd met Prince, Michael Jackson, and Jay-Z and were totally unimpressed by any of them. Is that- no,
1: that's bullshit. Yeah, that bullshit? Prince, that's bullshit. Fuck you know, GQ. Prince. Prince is one of the most amazing geniuses I've ever walked this earth. You know, how could you not be impressed by Prince? That's, that was my question. How can you, you know, Jay Z couldn't give a shit about. You know, I met so many people from my career. Just to hang out with Andy Warhol. These people are geniuses. Do you know what I mean? How can you not be impressed by these people or what they do? Mm. The masters are, they're masters of their art. You know, Prince isn't someone that used to, that went in the studio and got someone else to make his tracks for him. You know, he, that guy pr- produced everything that he ever touched, played every instrument, did everything. How can you not be impressed by that?
0: Do you know, ah, uh, no. So good. there's your answer. Of course I'm impressed. Good, good, good man. Um, I was in awe of these people. So what's next? What happens next?
1: What's next? Uh, there's a book. I'm writing a book. I have loads and loads and loads of mad offers all of a sudden. <coughs> Lots of TV stuff. I'm starting a new TV channel, uh, program. I'm doing a YouTube channel. Uh, I'm doing a, yeah, there's a lot of stuff coming up. Wow. You know what? Um, it's all creative and it's really, I'm not, you know, I've been asked to do a lot of silly things which I say no to. Too long in the tooth for that rubbish. Do you know what I mean? Um, but for me, uh, the most important thing is happiness. As long as I'm happy doing what I'm doing, then it, it will work. What is happiness to you now? What makes you happy? Happiness is being at home with my partner David and being at home with Taylor uh, and being in the moment, not chasing what something, looking for things that I don't, don't have. It, it's it's knowing. I, it's no. It, happiness is knowing that what I've got right now is enough. Do you know what I'm saying? And and making do with. You know, it's not about making do, that's the, what, that's the wrong thing to say. You know, it's, it's, it's about making magic with what you have, and that's what it's about. And, you know, there's so many things that are coming. You know, people could go and say to me, oh, the last three years your career has really took off. And it's like, no, it hasn't. It's like been the 13 years of sobriety and, and recovery that has enabled me to become the person who I was and who I am today. It's that person, and that comes from happiness. Yeah, I think you know. I'm going back in the studio. Um, We've defected. There's loads of stuff coming up. It's you know, there's some really amazing things that are in the pipeline. That's so
0: cool. Yeah. that's so so. cool. I'm
1: blessed, you know. I'm blessed, and you know, it's it's not about luck. Luck's winning the lottery. So, you know, being blessed. I'm I'm blessed in the sense that I got a second chance at life, and you know, I'm not going to throw that away. And I think that every moment that we have is precious, especially today when, when you lose someone when you lose people in your life, and you just kinda reevaluate things. You no, know, because I don't need a drink or a drug to be an arsehole. I can do that very easily myself. But you know, I but you know, what happens is I have this part of my brain, this the took the, the program that I work within. Narcotics Anonymous, which is how I stay clean. And sometimes it, it, it takes a while to kick in, and when it kicks in, it gives me a boot up the else that I need to be. Your behaviours are off key. Or the way you're treating people, the way you're treating yourself, it's about self-care. And as long as I'm looking after this, everything else falls into place. And Yeah. So after lockdown, who knows?
0: Man, that's a beautiful message. What a lovely, lovely way to end it. If, uh, Thank you. I'm really excited, I think. You know, there's a, a lot of DJs and people in nightlife who need to hear this kind of message. You know, I'm I'm around you know, guys who haven't gone to the extremes, perhaps, that you did. Yeah,
1: um, I wouldn't recommend that. I wouldn't recommend <laughs> it. I know, you know, uh, people always say, oh, if there's a part of you that you could change, what would it be? And I was just saying, none of it. Because you know that's my journey. That's who I am. That shit I went through. That shit I created. All of that stuff that went before is kind of took, brought me to this point in my life. And um, I think if I changed any of that, then I wouldn't be where I am today. In the sense of I wouldn't have found what it was I was looking for all that time. Without sounding like a really bad U two song. <laughs> uh, but you know what? It's kind of it's it's, um, it's a it's a weird one. It really is. And yeah. Life has an odd win. way
0: of, of dropping serendipity on us a lot, doesn't it? There's some poetic, yeah, poetic irony that just keeps on looping around.
1: You know, with the, within, when, you know when we we showed the film at Selfridges, we, we did six nights of previews to the film, and uh, each night we we had to go and talk, and you know it was like a cute little Q and A. And the guys were like saying it's not a, the film's not a story of pity; it's a story of redemption. And I kept thinking, why are they saying that? And you know, it was really, it really is a story of redemption in the sense of, you know, they, when you see the trailers for it, or you, they, they use like dramatic lines, like I spent a million pounds on, on drugs, they're not boasts. People go, how can you boast about that? Taking it out of context. But they, they've used those lines just so it catches people up, people's eyes. When you see the story, there's no boasting in it. That's not me boasting about spending that money that's that's far from it i wouldn't i'm not reveling in it you know um it destroyed my life you know um but what the the boasting about there is no boasting in it It, where it takes you to uh, you know i'm I'm just blessed to be alive
0: and i'm very glad that you are really really glad you you are i think the world's a brighter place because of it so people want to find out more about you keep up to date with what it is you got going on Where, where should they go
1: DJ Fat Tony on Instagram. Uh,
0: my link. There's a link on there to my YouTube channel. Uh, I'm, I'm on
1: Instagram 24 hours a day. My partner really don't hate the fact that I'm on there that much. You know, I'm kind of, you know, it's an addiction. It's a healthy addiction. Um, yeah, they're on my YouTube channel.
0: Yeah, those are the two places you can always find me. Amazing. Will be linked in the show notes below, of course. I recommend that you go and check it out because there are some fantastic memes. I, think, I don't think there's anyone putting out a higher velocity of memes and you are on Instagram at the moment. You
1: know what, like Chris, I get so many messages every day of people saying to me, thank you, you're helping us get through this, thank you for your sense of humour. You know, it's kind of like that, the messages that I get from certain people, you know, so many messages every day. I reply to every one of them because someone's taken the time to to, to uh, message me, so they deserve to get an answer. And then people are really shocked that you you reply, that I reply. They're like, oh, my God, I wasn't expecting you to reply. I was like, of course. why wouldn't I? Oh, well, I message David Beckham and he doesn't reply. <laughs> and I always say, and I always say to David Beckham, "You need to start replying your messages." <laughs> yeah.
0: David, you this, is, you. this is a you problem. David. They're all jumping ship. Why aren't you putting up more memes, David? Why isn't your music track selection for your misses's birthday better? And why aren't you replying to your DMs? That's what I want to know. Look, man, Tony, it. it's been it's been fantastic. Thank you so Thanks. much for coming on. I'm going to look forward to the book coming out and to following your YouTube channel. Um... It's been brilliant. If you've enjoyed the episode, drop Tony a message or you know where to find me at Chris Well X on all social media. Like, share. If you're new here, hit the subscribe button. But for now, Tony, man, thank you. God bless. Thank you very much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend. It would make me very happy indeed. Don't forget, if you've got any questions or comments or feedback, feel free to message me at chriswillex on all social media. But for now, goodbye, friends.